hello, this is Guillermo del Toro, and you're listening to Out Now Podcast. Hello. We are now recording, and this is Out Now with Aaron and Abe. I am Aaron and Abe is... Uh, this is a scary podcast. He doesn't join in for the scary ones too often, but uh, he'll he'll be back on the show soon enough for some fun stuff that we got going for the end of the year. Uh, but this is a film podcast where Abe and I normally discuss the movies weekly. However, we like to have these special bonus episodes, and uh, this week, or this today, uh, as we uh, enter into 2022, we're just about to get there at the time of this recording. This might drop afterwards, but uh, we figured... What if we did something cool and different and uh, get into the horror films of 2021? What we're going to do here today is we're going to go over our uh, our inaugural 2021 Horror Awards, where uh, myself and my the guest I have with me we're going to kind of go over what our some of our favorite horror films in very in various forms, basically as if there were an Oscars but it was only focused on the horror genre. So joining me today to do just that we have from Cal State Fullerton, he's ready to cut out. The candy. It's Professor Mike Dillon. Hey, hey, hey. How are you doing? Good. You know, we didn't talk about what to call these awards. Are the, you uh, the Out Nowies? The Out Nowies. <laughs> the, the Aaron and Abies? Uh, I <laughs> I just wrote the 2021 Horror Awards <laughs> for now. Mm. But the, we, but need the to, we need to revisit this. Well, the awards themselves, I think the, that, you know, the name is whatever, but I feel like the, the, the trophy is is what we need to give a name to right you know there's like an oscar and a gold like you know mm-hmm. we can give out you know i don't know the gabriels this year like something right <laughs> we, we have to what give it to someone standing backwards i guess something along those lines upside down yeah. well the, the presenter i, I do think yeah i do think this is a great idea it's an opportunity to talk about just excellence in a genre that's routinely locked out of conversations at this time of the year when all the focus is on awards mm-hmm. so i'm uh i'm excited to break it down i am too like we kind of <laughs> just kind of sprung this idea on you because we did the our, our collaborative awards for or, or like a ranking for the documentaries and like we should do this for horror and that just got us be snowballed into doing a full-on podcast about this very topic because why not we, we both of us really like horror films and there's plenty of things to kind of uh, pay recognition to as we get to the end of the year and yes as you just said realize that many of these films aren't going to be in the conversation when it comes to the quote-unquote legitimate awards ceremonies so um but yeah that's that's what we're going to do here we're going to talk about various horror films divided up into different categories we have a number of categories that all are somewhat fairly familiar but also some fun ones that kind of apply to specifically this genre and um before we get to all of that i want to ask you mike are there any horror films that you didn't get to this year any ones that maybe you've heard about that you just weren't able to see I'm always having to miss things at, on the festival circuit mm-hmm. because they program one thing against each other. So I do know there's a few things that are probably on their way uh, in 2022 that I'll have to see then. Um, like there's one called, I think it's called The Medium, mm-hmm. which I missed. I believe it's Thai. Uh, not too clear what it's about, but I, I remember seeing it was getting good notices. I think, I think I'm pretty caught up. I'm sure you're going to mention some titles that I... Uh, um, failing to remember not having seen but i think the most glaring omission for me was the fear street trilogy Hmm. that came out over the summer i only saw the first one and i wasn't that impressed and and despite the insistence of several friends who told me that the the second two are better (laughs) yeah yeah i uh 
yeah, I just never circled back to it. So I think that's probably an omission on my part this year. Fair enough. I, uh, there's a, yeah, there's a few that I that I've like heard good things about, but I just didn't have a chance to get to. Uh, one is the Queen of Black Magic. I've heard a lot of good things about that mm-hmm. film. It's a, I believe it's a Vietnamese film and a remake. Um, Super Deep, um, Agnes, Knocking, and Come True. Those are all various ones I've heard good things about. And I, I've not seen. I've mm-hmm. yeah, I did not see Agnes and the Unholy. Mm-hmm. Is another one. The Unholy I didn't see either, and I've actually I've heard good things. I've heard I've heard a lot of bad things, but I've heard good things from people that I generally respect when it comes to horror. So that's and that and I actually have the Unholy. <laughs> I just haven't watched it. So, but uh, I'll get to it. But uh, okay, so there. Yeah. Can I ask you uh, just a, just as an, a broad overview question? How was your year in horror? Like, was this a good year? Do you think? Um. I would say by default, yes, just because there are some key titles that I really enjoyed, and one of which is even on my top ten films of the year list, and some are in my honorable mentions and runner-ups. Um, I would say I was looking at my letterbox to see just like how much horror I watched, and it seems like it was lower uh, than normal, and I'm not sure if that's more of a there just weren't as many that I like needed to jump to uh, versus versus me just not like you know going out of my way to see them because i didn't really see a lot of horror films but i know in recent years there have been some years that have just had like knockout after knockout as far as horror goes um but again i mean there's a lot of good ones that i saw i mean i have looking at like the best picture category i had a lot of options that i never tried to narrow down to just five so i mean yeah i mean over the most part i'd say it's it's a it's a pretty good year for horror how about you uh all in all pretty good year i think on balance i think maybe last year was a better year for me i think that's largely due to the pandemic which shelved a lot of studio films and that that really cleared a lot of space for smaller films so it was a good year to catch up on independent film in general Mm -hmm. Um, but last year there was a his house and swallow and these are all some of the films that i really loved last year and i feel this year was kind of a slow return to normal um with more studio films coming out and i think uh nonetheless i think the trend remains that because horror is a genre that you can make really cheaply and effectively mm-hmm. with uh, on a small budget, even during the pandemic, even though I, I can't really say how many of the films we'll look at today were pandemic productions. But I think bottom line, I think uh, if there were enough films that I like to generate uh, an awards list, like the one we're about to do, then it was, I think a decent year all in all. No, that's certainly fair. Cause I, I would agree. I have, I had a lot of options as far as uh, things to look into. So I think that's, Everything we need to cover out of the way. So let's just let's get into it. Let's get to our categories. So how we're going to do this is I have many categories I've already explained. And what Mike and I are going to do is uh, we're, I'm going to name the category. Mike will give his winner for that category as well as his runner-up. And, we'll, and I will do the same, and then we'll just have some conversation before we move on to the next category. Make sense? Uh, yeah, sure. Yeah. We'll, we'll, have to, we'll have to reach around as we go. Yeah. <laughs> sure. <laughs> All right. So the first category we have is for... Best creepy kid, Mike. Who's your who's your winner and runner-up for best creepy kid? Okay, so I actually this is maybe the wrong way to start off, but I actually didn't think this was that memorable a year for creepy kids. I couldn't really think of strong candidates other than maybe the boy from Sun, mm-hmm. who's creepy, but I think his creepiness actually doesn't work for the film because there's long stretches when he's supposed to be likable. And that oscillation between creepy and likable is a key dramatic point. Um, but he doesn't really sell the back and forth because he's just creepy all the way through. But 
I did think it was a great year for kids in distress. That's such a weird sentence to say. But, uh, <laughs> it's another there, there one. Some, <laughs> uh, there, there were some fantastic child performances in movies like The Gin and The Boy Behind the Door. Those are good. Those are Both, good examples. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, mainly involving children in, in real peril. And so either of those would be runner-ups for me. But I'm going to give it to the two little girls from Martyr's Lane. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I didn't look up their names. But one is the lead character, and the other one is this ghostly presence who becomes her friend. And the film overall uh, really relies on these two child actors to carry it through, which it does pretty magnificently. So that's that's my pick. I believe the movie's on Shudder. I should have done that too. <laughs> I have a list of where these movies are available. Um, I'll try to do that when we wrap this up. I'll try to get like we can put our list together, and I can put together like a list of all the areas where these films are available because I know a lot of them are on Shutter. Oh, yeah. Some are well, no. Well, we don't. We don't need to identify uh, each one. That might. You know, I don't even know for half of these. So no, for the winners, though, I can put. I can put it. We'll okay. see. I'll figure it out. Um, I. Where's my list? I have, um, two. Uh, well, obviously I have two. And you mentioned like kids in terror. Creepy kids an interesting category, right? Like is it, it's like is the kid inherently creepy or just involved in creepy situations? Um, there is I don't know the actor's name because they're behind a mask, but there is in Fear, Fear Street '94. It's my runner-up. There is like a like a a masked small character who I believe is probably a child that was like very creepy. Like that was like one of the I guess like villain slasher characters that was coming after the uh, after the kids in that film. That uh, like it was enough to get to me as far as the kind of like visualization of the uh, of what was going on. Um, but my uh, my winner for this category, it's kind of a cheat because it's not necessarily a villain, but it's the character Mimi in Psycho Gorman because like, she she's she's so she's so into this world that uh, is presented to her as far as this you know this 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 alien monster being that's come and she's just so into like the way she reacts and handles the situation. There's, I feel like the creepy is a way to qualify like what it is she's going through as far as like her use of this character throughout the film. Um, and I think Nita, yeah. Nita Josie Hannah does a terrific job in that movie. It's a, it's a, it's a very, it's a hilarious performance. Um, and certainly kind of it, if you're in, if you're not knowing what the vibe of that film is going to be, the, it certainly gives you a great understanding of what kind of movie you're in for, given her interactions with with PG, with Psycho Gorman. Yeah, I think uh, Nita Josie Hanna is the absolute MVP of that movie. Mm -hmm. I mean, she's bratty and sociopathic and she kind of walks away with it. So I'm yeah. I totally endorse that. Take, and, the, yeah. and the sociopathic aspect, I think, is why creepy is a qualifier for it. Like, it's things happen in that movie. <laughs> All right, well, let's get let's get to our next category. Uh, this is for best makeup. And so the idea here, Mike, is you want to narrow it down is like as opposed to like just best overall makeup of a film, you want to narrow it down to, if I'm not mistaken, to like one particular aspect of the of a film. Am I correct? Um, I, I thought it could go both ways. Mm -hmm. I have some picks here that certainly are feature length, you know, characters who are in makeup the whole time. But then sure. I've got some that are sort of independent, and sort of little little moments. Fair enough. Well, let's let's get into what your picks were. What are your winners and runner-ups? <clears throat> um, or your runner-ups so, and winners, I should say it that way, so it's not confusing. Well, one one real quick one. It's a really small one, but it was a, a, a subtle favorite which I believe is a makeup effect because I know VFX we're going to talk about separately. Mm -hmm. I, I think it's a, I think it's a practical effect, but I, I 
could be wrong. I didn't get a close enough look, but it's from Nightmare Alley. Hmm. Um, I'm going to avoid the spoiler, particularly because the film is still pretty brand new. But uh, in a later scene, Bradley Cooper has just pummeled someone with his bare fists. Oh, okay. And he's in, he's, in, <laughs> he's in a bathroom and he's mending his hands afterward and extracts uh, a tooth from one of his knuckles. Mm-hmm. You know exactly what I'm talking about, right? Yes, I do. <laughs> uh, a, yeah, a, a tooth or a bone fragment or something. It's just, it's great. Um, you can hear the audience just kind of wince, as small as the audience was in my in my COVID screening. But second runner-up, the, the one I want to give a sort of shout-out to <clears throat> is VHS 94. Okay. Um, all of the VHS anthologies have kind of a low-tech aesthetic, partly for budgetary reasons, but also because it ties in with the outdated technology that's so central to the films. Mm-hmm. And this one has several great effects throughout, but in particular, I wanted to single out the segment by Timo. I think it's pronounced Tajanto. He's also done like uh, We Own the Night and things like that. Um, and not We it's Own about the Night. The we, own, we Own the Night's the... No. <laughs> that's that no, 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 no. What, what's it called? Um... The night comes for us. Night comes no, the for... night comes. For... That's what it's right. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, uh, this one, this segment, it's about a mad scientist who's creating these human machine hybrids. Now, uh, you know, if I took a closer look, there's probably a lot more CGI in there than I'm realizing. But where the effects are very obviously practical, they look great and they're quite effective and creepy. So I wanted to make that my official runner up. And then my gold uh, here actually is Psycho Gorman. It's got a dozen or so creatures in full body makeup that very closely resemble a sort of Power Rangers creature aesthetic, which mm-hmm. is to say it's incredibly cheesy looking. Mm-hmm. But the film, what it does that's so smart is that it leans into that and makes it part of the film's kind of goofy charm and its world building. Um, and not for nothing, the costumes are actually, they're really sophisticated despite how silly they're meant to look. It's like Dolly Parton said, it costs a lot of money to look this cheap. You know, and you can tell there's a lot of love and care that went into producing this really goofy content. And I think the balance between the creature and horror effects and the comedy in this film is is just top notch. So so I, I think I went against my own advice here and I, I'm picking something that's sort of, you know, pervasive through the film. But these are some of the best makeup effects that I found myself enjoying the most. Yeah, I had Psycho Gorman on my list as well as far as one to certainly consider because I, re- I completely, re- completely agree with you. The aesthetic of the film um, certainly fits the tone that it's going for, and it's admirable to you know see things used the way they are. Um, my runner-up is Zack Snyder's Army of the Dead um, because if there's one thing that Zack Snyder seems to know how to do really well, it's making effective zombies. <laughs> um, the, I think the while there's lots of visual effects work as well, the practical makeup design for the various zombie characters, particularly like the king and queen characters, um, I think is really effective as far as showing like what stage of zombie that I mean, it's because they're like they're aged desert to zombies in this case. Um, and Snyder has this, I guess he's in this phase of his career now where he likes to use these kind of intense close-ups while having like blurred backgrounds that gives a kind of impression of like a portrait mode on your, on an iPhone. Um, not everyone is a big fan of it and I understand that but in terms of seeing like all the detail you certainly get that when you're watching a movie like this in its 4K Netflix presentation and I think there's a lot of uh, very well designed zombie uh, makeup uh, creatures in play here so I, I, I think that's a really strong look but my, my winner for this category 
comes down to a moment. Um, it is in Malignant uh, when we learn about Gabriel um, to a very up-close um, and personal degree. Um, without getting too far into it, there is a reveal that happens that features a very elaborate makeup design that you come to understand as soon as the camera makes basically a you know 30-degree turn around a character. And coming to see like oh this is what's going on here it's such a it, it's it's a bit of a jolt by design the score certainly kicks in to make sure that you know it's a jolt but just seeing how like if you already thought this movie was wild it just got even more wild given the extent of what's going on with this gabriel character that we've been hearing about for like the past hour and change before finally understanding oh this is what gabriel is um so yeah it it's a it's a giant what the fuck moment. Um, <laughs> I felt you tiptoeing around that a little bit. Are you talking about the reveal um, that is shown to us through like archival video footage? Yes, that reveal. Yes. Okay. Yes. Um, and it's yes. that's yeah, and it's not the only time we like. There's another reveal as far as how Gabriel is in the present. That's also effective. But yes, it is that main like oh this is this is all that Gabriel uh, once was. Uh, that really uh any any viewer that's seen malignant any listener that's seen malignant knows what i'm talking about so there <laughs> yeah i i think that's also the moment in the narrative in which the the film takes a real hard left mm-hmm. and the rest of the film is like next level bananas from yeah. that point on the, the the third act is just you know bonkers and i think that's that's the point in the film that where things shift i think if i recall yeah it's uh it's it's already taken some like big moves but then it's like okay now we're like yeah we're, we're gonna we're really gonna ramp things up now um okay so that's makeup let's go in the next category let's get to best visual effect uh, so this is more in the kind of cg realm uh this time around um mike what are your what are your runner-ups and winner for best visual effects so i have a runner-up and a winner but i think as a separate matter, because it's a horror film, but it's not a horror effect. I actually think the, the the most impressive visual effect this year is the insertion of Tig Notaro into Army of the Dead, um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. which I, I I did not know that's what I was watching until I looked up some stuff afterwards. And that I can only imagine the, the level of choreography and planning. And, and that's just a very fascinating bts thing all, all by itself it is it's very um, impressive and it does yeah. yeah if you if you're unaware entirely of what happened there you wouldn't be the wiser like it's not something you'd be like huh this sticks out it'd be like it's not a thing yeah and i i, I don't mean to be glib about it because the actor who they they scrubbed out of the film i mean if these allegations are true that means there are victims out there mm-hmm. um of abuse and that's that's you know i don't want to sort of downplay that uh, and let my enthusiasm over the visual effect get ahead of me. But in terms of just the craftsmanship and, you know, the, the, the finesse that that must have involved, I, I never would have known. And I thought that was impressive. My runner up, we, so it's last night in Soho. Um, we never talked about this movie, right? Because I didn't really like it as much as you evidently did. Um, but I did love the, um, I believe it's the first time she dreams about the past. Thomas and Mackenzie, I, I believe this is the the, yes. the first sort of flashback. And she's dancing on the floor. Mm-hmm. It's a dance sequence, but she keeps alternating with Anya Taylor-Joy in the shot. I'm assuming there's like mainly VFX work there, although I couldn't tell you exactly what the trickery is. But it's an amazing bit of choreography that I was just sort of, you know, uh, gaping at. Uh, 
you know, even though the film overall had problems with. But my my favorite visual effect um, is from A Quiet Place Part Two. It's a cool effect, but it really is the money shot of the trailer, which is it's this sort of oneer of Emily Blunt driving down Main Street as mm-hmm. the town is besieged by these aliens. It's their, it's their initial attack. And you see this extended alien arm reaching out of the the bus's windshield. I think you know the shot I'm referring to, right? Yes, I do. Yeah, loved it. As you know, I, I avoid trailers, and so I, I saw that moment for the first time. It wasn't spoiled for me. Uh, and then when I found out after the fact that it's it's kind of featured really prominently in the trailer, I thought, smart. That's just that's a that's a great shot. Yeah, no, that is a great shot, and that was one of my um one of my runner-ups for sure, because if there's one thing that I really liked about A Quiet Place Part 2, a sequel that I liked more than the original, it's the fact that the visual effects seem to have gotten a big upgrade. Um, I think there's a good reason why we see the monsters in daylight a lot more. It's because they had a bigger budget to actually work on them, and they look a lot better. And yes, there's a lot of menace uh, to how we see it portrayed in, in that opening sequence alone. That opening sequence, I think, is pretty spectacular. But yeah, that, that little bit in particular that you're mentioning, it's it's a good one. Uh, the the last night in Soho thing that you're mentioning too, I also agree. I think that's a great kind of opening uh, or like first dream sequence that we get. There's a lot of clever visual trickery there that Edgar Wright is certainly used to kind of pulling off, um, and you know finding ambitious ways to do new things. Um, the um, my runner up uh, that I have for this, uh, my first is from uh, Godzilla vs Kong. Um, there there is a Obviously, you're talking about two characters that are entirely visual effects, but the one uh, visual effect in particular uh, that evokes horror for me is this point where Kong um, takes out a, a flying beast, um, rips its head off, and then like drinks the goo out of said beast's skull, which is such a <laughs> such a wonderful visual um, to both describe and watch um, in a film. Uh, but my favorite visual effect. Um, from a horror film this year is um, Lamb, the um, just the the child itself. I um, I'm aware there's some practical elements, but I mean I believe the whole thing is still in order to kind of complete that effect. Whenever you see the child in you know, like a full shot, there is always like a, 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 a visual effect, a computer generated element uh, to make it all feel so seamless. Um, and it's, I mean, it's very impressive. I mean, I, I'm always like that. That's a movie that invites a lot of questions and what have you, as far as like what's going on, what these things represent, or whatnot. With the, you know, the to to pull off this very specific look of what's what this child is. Um, it, it never takes me out of the film as far as the kind of the technical aspects of it, the technical element of it. So I, I, I do think Lamb is a very successful visual effect. Yeah, I, I was thinking about that one, too, as a sort of short list. But I, I just I really wasn't sure whether to classify that as a practical effect or a VFX effect, because it, it seems to alternate. And I, just, I think the two just kind of canceled out in my mind. But mm-hmm. I'm definitely with you because the that effect needs to work to sell us on the weirdness of the movie. Mm-hmm. Right. And to. And the kid has to, the, the lamb, the, the child has to be likable on some level, whether it's like, you know, it's just a cute little creature or or um, you have to buy into the affection that the two characters have for this for this mm-hmm. lamb monster that they've decided to adopt. But um, so on that front, I thought it just it looks great. Right. It, it looks just uncanny enough to kind of have that uncanniness really map nicely onto the weirdness that's already going on mm-hmm. um yeah that's a really successful 
use of, of visual effects or practical or whatever the combination is. Well, I, I did I did some research it, on this because I wasn't entirely sure myself and I wanted to make sure I qualified it properly. And yes, it, I mean, there is a CG element present. Anytime you see it, like a full on shot of lamb of it kind of of it of it in in sight and not just like them hiding the, you know, the head um, it's there's CG involved to, to like make that work. But yeah, yeah, there was like on set, obviously there was like a, a practical element to help pull that off when necessary. But mm -hmm. yeah. All right. Um, let's move on. Let's get to our next category for best adapted screenplay. Mike, what are your runner ups and winners for best adapted screenplay? So when we say adapted, I just wanted some clarification, right? So we, we did discuss earlier about sequels and remakes. Yeah. Which is, yeah, how I've decided to to interpret the um, the category. <clears throat> um, so in terms of studio films uh, this year, I think the film that did hit its target the best was uh, A Quiet Place 2. Um, I'm a little surprised that you liked it more than part one because it's, it is a bigger uh, and louder movie as sequels often tend to be, and that's fine. Um, I really liked it, but I did think it lacked what was so kind of interesting and subversive about the first film, right? Which is to have it set in near silence. So like, to me, that's why it's a runner up. Um, I would to, to add to that, I would say Abe, and for one thing, Abe and I are famously the two, <laughs> the two guys that are not super big on quiet place to begin with. Um, I think it is good. I just, I don't think it is great. Um, and to say that I like the second one better, it's not leaps and bounds for me. It's, and it's not, but it's not splitting hairs either. I do think they're just things that I just overall like more but um, overall, I still just kind of think of them as like, yeah, they're fun. <laughs> like that's kind of my. There are a lot. There are a lot of. It's ninety minutes, all set pieces. Like that's pretty much what it works as, and it's effective. Yeah. And so, what I liked this year were some of the remakes that I saw that reinvented the original in these interesting ways. Sure. There's a, a slumber a slumber party massacre remake. Mm -hmm. um, did you see that one? I have not got to it yet, oh. actually. Yeah, so one of the, you know, schlockier slasher films from the 80s, and they remake it, and it starts out as a pretty traditional slasher, but then gradually, not not exactly imperceptibly, but it gradually becomes clear that, no, this is actually kind of a wacky comedy that parodies the gender tropes of the genre. Um, and it's it's not Which the original terrific, is kind of doing also to its own, but I know what you're saying. Though. It, it, yeah. yeah, it is, but yeah, this one really, it, it's self-aware. Um, sure, okay. You know, it's a very sort of you know post scream and a meta comedy about the the nature of of the genre and its tropes. So that's a fun one. But in that vein, my favorite one that I'm going to sort of uh, tip my hat to was uh, Wrong Turn, oh. which is a remake or, or or maybe just a reboot of the 2003 uh, sort of uh, uh, hill hill people cannibal thriller slasher. Uh, which has like movie. four or five sequels, I believe, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I, I don't know that I've seen the sequels, but I have seen the first one. Anyway, this this new one it reinvents the mythology completely. Mm -hmm. um, it, it's it's a very different movie, but and it's it's quite interesting. And as far as remakes, we weren't really asking for. Uh, this is a pretty solid film. I recommend it. Okay, I I, I've ha I have heard a lot of good things about about Wrong Turn to my surprise because i was like of all things <laughs> the, yeah, series, it's, it's, the series that fox kept going <laughs> it's like oh now there's a reboot of it okay yeah it's not clear to me why they you know went with the ip given how much they're changing but it's it's good it's creepy it's got good kills yeah, check it out all right let's see quiet place 2 i did consider as far as adapted screenplay goes 
Um, but my my runner up um, would have to be Nightmare Alley, um, just because I, for one thing, I I'm a huge fan of the Tyrone Power film. Um, oh, me too. Uh, yeah, it's fantastic, and I don't think this one quite this Guillermo del Toro's one quite uh, rose to the challenge to uh, take it on. Not that it needed to, but I just I wasn't as big of a fan of it. But as far as taking that same novel and you know taking you know making it with a you know a modern eye, um, it certainly incorporates a lot of a lot of elements that the uh, the original the other film couldn't necessarily include, and certainly wants to be this kind of very dark, uh, nasty neo-noir um, in ways that the original also is, but this one can go even further just because of more modern sensibilities and what what sense what 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 uh what's allowed to be in filmmaking basically. Um, but my my winner for this category is interesting because it's Candyman, and it's you know it, it's interesting if I think about this on an execution level, I don't think it entirely knocks it out of the park as far as what it's setting up to do but in terms of a screenplay that has that's full of ideas and uh, themes relevant to now and what it's trying to say about society and how it connects to the original Candyman um, I think this movie I think it's, it's fascinating I think there's a lot of I really wish I could this is like a screenplay I really wish to read because I'm just curious like wh- what was a, what was the original design of this thing before whatever happened to kind of chop it down to a 90 minute movie um, I, I think there's a lot there um, and I I, I do think the just, it's really like the I think the third act goes off the off the rails a bit, but I do think the kind of the the film that's being set up throughout and what we're learning about the various characters and how it's incorporating both familiar subject matter as well as actual history um, as far as some references that are made, I think it's just very interesting. Yeah, I'm with you there. I, I'm glad you conceded that the ending kind of goes off the rails. I think. You know, the strengths of its sort of allegorical underpinnings don't really hold all the way through. But in a way, I felt that I wanted that movie to be a little longer. Like I could have used it fleshing out a little bit, (laughs) so to speak. Um, But I think I'm I'm, I'm wondering what you think about if if I recall, because this was like in September, right? Mm -hmm. I found it really August rich and interesting um, how the movie was sort of using the contemporary art world. Mm-hmm. to a- allegorize the ways in which sort of middle-class white culture profits from black suffering, right? That's a major theme in the film. And it, it also kind of plugs the movie into just really uh, uh, important conversations and reckonings we've been having with racial injustice that we've been seeing over the last couple of years, George Floyd and whatnot. That said, I do recall some critics, and I think particularly like African-American critics, were saying that the film because it's also a commercial genre film, is itself guilty of doing exactly that, the sort of commodifying black suffering um, that it's it's meant to critique at the same time. I wonder if you, you, I'm sure you covered it in depth in an episode. I wonder if you encountered any of that and had an opinion about it. We had a very long episode covering Candyman, and that's not me trying to avoid the question, but I mean, we, we, we talked at length about the movie because I do think the original was fantastic, and I was this was one of my most anticipated movies of the year. Um, and, you know, without getting too far into this conversation again, um, I mean, the, the very, you know, the very note, I mean, for what they we're, we're watching cinema and there has to be a, it has to appease a lot of different things at once. And this is not some scrappy underdog. It's a universal, you know, production <laughs> that's taking, that's remaking a story that's already existed. It's all right. It's an IP, right? 
Um, but yeah. I, I do think that there is, you know, in this day and age where we have, where, where movies are large, you know, movies at the theaters are largely success, successful when it comes to having a brand associated with it already to kind of already provide a market, uh, without having to sold, you know, rely on an audience that's not quite sure about seeing original films, having something like Candyman that already exists. I found that to be just a great means for Jordan Peele and Nia DaCosta, among the other people that worked on the, you know, adapting the story. I thought that was a great opportunity to, to take something like this that was already, you know, a property that was rich with this, you know, specific kind of subject matter and, you know, heavy thematics or what have you. And, and you know, incorporate and modernize that um, for today, um, while both respecting the, you know, the original as well as finding new ways to tackle similar themes involving gentrification and uh, certain right. struggles and what have you like it's to to want to like to criticize the notion of is it profiting off of a you know of black suffering just by existing it's like <laughs> how like what 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 other means can you go through if not the the most popular form of media that's out there to display a certain message in a way, it kind of nicely dovetails the dilemma of the main character, right? Because mm -hmm. I, if I recall, his whole problem is that <clears throat> he's caught between. Uh, so there's this market, uh, mainly sort of upper class white people who uh, who are just devouring all this new art that represents sort of black suffering. And so he's caught in between having to produce art that that deals with these sort of centuries old uh, traumas while at the same time uh, catering to these audiences who always want something new and interesting. And then the kind of the, the split personality has to develop as a result mm -hmm. of that is maybe arguably what the film is going through itself, right? To have to produce something that's commercially marketable and, and ties with a specific genre while also addressing something that's age old and, and kind of doesn't need constant reinvention for us to have to really think carefully about. You see, this is why I'm happy to have it as does that my adapt. It does, and this is why I'm happy to have it as my adapted screenplay pick because look at the conversation it generates to begin with. I feel like there's this, even if yeah. the movie's execution overall is not entirely successful, which I do also want. Now it's funny because it's coming out on Blu-ray soon, and it's pretty packed with special features, including some deleted scenes or what have you. Um, and I, I am curious, like. From what I can tell, Peel and DaCosta, like, they're plenty happy to talk about the film, what have you. Um, but it does feel like a movie that's been scripted down to 90 minutes. And it's like, was there a loss at some point as far as what they originally intended versus what actually occurred in the film or whatnot? But I don't know that answer. But regardless, I do think the film is quite fascinating, even if it's not, like, a 100% great movie. I do think it inspires a lot of conversation, which was clearly the intention to begin with. So I, I'm not... Mm -hmm. I think a, scre a screenplay award for me for this particular award ceremony, uh, I think is is uh, worthy. So, um, I know again, <laughs> it just jumps in with Candyman. So let's move on. Let's get to the next category. Let's get to best right. original screenplay. You're you're fine. It's it's fun to talk about. Uh, best original screenplay. Mike, what are your runner ups and winner for best original screenplay? Okay, so I made a a, a mistake with this one. Um, that was it not original? Uh... <laughs> Yeah, so I thought it was original, and I just moments before I got on the the call with you, I just looked up. So I should really look up the name of this uh, this writer, and it turned out to be a uh, adaptation from a short story. Mm -hmm. But I'm just going to go with it anyway. So it's not original, but my runner up is uh, a movie from New Zealand called Coming Home in the Dark, mm. uh, which evidently is based on a short story. 
so the screenplay is by uh, Eli Kent and James Ashcroft. Ashcroft is also the director. Uh, this, do you know this movie, Aaron? It's actually, it's also another one that's on my my missed list. Yeah. Okay. So without any um, spoilers, obviously, it's 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 film about a family on vacation that's attacked and abducted by two drifters. It's very scary and very brutal. Mm. Um, and yeah, it's just it's just a really cool genre movie. Uh, but not original. So my my actual pick for an actually original screenplay is Titan, uh, written and directed by Julia DeCornau. Um, I I love a film that teeters the line between genuine social commentary. In this case, it's got a lot going on about the nature of masculinity and gender roles and things like that. But also the line between that and just shameless button pushing. Mm-hmm. Um, I did like this more than Raw. Um, and I think most of all, uh, it's like you were saying with Candyman, this this film had the quality that I like most in a movie, which is that I wanted to just talk about it with people afterward and, and, and dissect it and get into disagreements about it and the significance of that and the meaning of this. And so that that is my top pick. This is a really outrageous but fun, strange movie. And yeah. Well, that's fitting because um, my runner-up is also Tatane. Um, I, I mean, for all the reasons you just said, it's a it it is a off the wall kind of movie that's designed to uh, provoke. And it certainly invites a lot of questions as far as like what's the meaning behind all this and what have you. Um, and yeah, uh, but my uh, my winner uh, for this one uh, is Last Night in Soho. I, I I am a huge fan of the film. I um. I do think it's for me it's Edgar Wright who you know it's interesting like, to say this is a mature film is one thing but it's like I don't think his other films are necessarily immature because um, there are there are clear themes and a clear through line as far as at least his Cornetto trilogy as far as you know representing you know a, a certain kind of certain kind of male going through a growing up period period and kind of reflecting on you know, aspects of where they are in their lives in their twenties and thirties as they, as they approach kind of middle age. Um, but with last night in Soho, I mean, the, one of the, the key, um, aspects of it that I, I really appreciate is that he's not only telling a story of, uh, you know, this, of this young woman who's finding herself lost in time and, and experience what she experiences, but that like, he's, you know, not just written this himself, but he's brought on a female screenwriter to have an additional perspective to, ideally clarify or provide like more of what could be needed to address the various elements going on here in a story that very much revolves around trauma uh, among other things to delve into what whatever origin is going on for particularly for Anya Taylor Joy's character uh, and also just crafting a narrative that does have to incorporate both modern times contemporary times as well as the 60s and finding a way to kind of weave both things back and forth with each other I just found that all to be really fascinating and plus, I like Wright's films. I like his characters. I like the work that he does to establish certain motifs and running running gags. This is not really a funny movie by comparison to his other films, but you know, there's certainly things that are uh, repetitive that come up um, as he's want to do in any of his films. So no, I was, I mean, I'm a big fan of Last Night in Soho. So yes, I, I really like the screenplay for it. That's so funny because I I didn't really care for Last Night in Soho, and the things that I really loved. <clears throat> are like impeccable production design. And I really love the look of it and, and all of that. But I feel like the reason I didn't like it is more attributable to what's on the page, mm. which is I, I found, uh, I was really into it maybe the first 
hour, I guess. But I thought the second act was just really overlong and um, repetitive. This, these encounters with these ghouls. And it just kind of goes back to the same well over and over again. And and then the ending, I thought, really kind of cheats. So, yeah, I wonder if I need to give that one a second look. But I, I remember not, not caring for it too much. I don't think it cheats, but, I mean, there's a lot of conversation <laughs> to go there. I do think it's messy, but I think it's deliberately so. Like, I don't think they, like, accidentally got to where they wanted to. Yeah. No, I, I can't really... Sure. make the allegation uh, without giving away a, a major thing at the end but mm. yeah i thought the, the the last the climax was a little you're right it's, it's messy in a way that i thought was sloppy whereas yeah. you saw kind of a, a more deliberate sort of chaos maybe but mm-hmm. yeah not my not my favorite Edgar Wright. i hear you two actresses i really admire though thomas and mckenzie in particular i think we've talked about before um because leave no trace i think is one of the really great movies of the last decade it's very good all right, let's move on to our next category. We have, this is a fun one, best horror scene in a non-horror movie. So a, a, a sequence of horror of some kind that features in a movie that's not necessarily a horror film. Mike, what are your runner-ups and uh, winners for this one? Um, my main runner-up is uh, a scene that I found pretty effective was in The Guilty with Jake Gyllenhaal. Mm. It's the moment when he is listening as the officers are finding... Um, they're, they're entering a scene of, of violence on the other side of the phone. So if people don't know, the whole thing is it stays with Jake Hall, who's a 911 dispatch, and everything happens over the phone, so you don't really see anything. But there, there's there's a few like really shocking revelations over the phone, but this is the one that involves a small child. Um, that's pretty effective. Now, this is a bit of a cheat because uh, this is taken word for word from the original Danish film, which mm-hmm. I'm a big fan of. And there really isn't much variation, but it still works. And it works so well because it relies on our worst sort of imaginings of what must be going on on the other side of the phone. And so I thought that was worth a shout out. Um, uh, the beta test, we, we had a brief exchange. It's not really a horror film, um, but it does have an opening act of violence that's genuinely shocking um, and horrific. And apart from that, actually... What I wanted to sort of point out was it, it, this isn't a scene or a moment, but there were some films that for me evoked the feeling and sensation of horror in non-horror films that I found were really interesting. My favorite example of this is Shiva Baby, hmm. yeah. which, yeah, it grinds out this. It's it's a comedy, but it grinds out this tension mainly through the score, which is like out of a horror film. Yes, um, I looked it's... up a- a- Ariel Marks is the is the composer. Yeah, it, the main character, she's not in any kind of danger. She's just uncomfortable, right, around her overbearing family at this. Um, a Shiva is not a funeral, right? It's a like Shiva, a family yeah. gathering. Well, Shiva. yeah, yeah, it's more, um, it's more of like a, yes, it's it's a, it's a gathering in honor of someone that's recently passed. It's not specifically, right. so it's, it's not like the a funeral ceremony. Right, so it is a mourning ritual. Yes, right? it's, a, yes it's a mourning, yeah, that's um, the way to put it. Uh, I got Shiva confused with Shiva, goddess of death. Yeah, but, I hear you. Uh, <laughs> Yeah. Anyway, uh, the score, the the kind of horror score is done solely to like amplify her misery, which, again, adds nicely to the comedy. And I thought that was really great. Another another film that has these sort of um, not quite horror, but really intense and jarring use of editing and sound design for the purposes of generating anxiety is in The Novice mm-hmm. um, during some of the characters um, sort of the, 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 these really intense training regimen she goes through that kind of border on the verge of a nervous breakdown and that that stuff was all very uh 
very good. I yeah, thought. The, yeah, the novice, which I really like, also um, certainly has scenes that remind you of like Whiplash, as far as like the intensity that the characters going through to push themselves to be the best. Yeah, so th- those are my picks. Um, Shiva Baby, I think, is is the the main one though. Um, I, I do I just actually as a shout out to an earlier episode I recorded with you guys. Uh, remember we talked about It Comes at Night. Yep. I don't remember the director's name, but he'd previously done a movie called Krishna. Yeah, Trey Trey uh, Schultz. Uh, Trey. Uh, okay, yeah. Yeah. It's like a three three. It's like Trey Evan right? Schultz, I think. So, yeah. Something like that. I know he did Waves as well, yeah, which Waves. is another film I liked. But anyway, um, you know, so we're doing this this horror movie, and that made me realize later, uh, and I think I mentioned this when we talked about it, that Krisha is also kind of a horror movie of sorts. Yeah. Sort of in this vein of Ship of Baby, because it's also about a, a home kind of being invaded by this, if not malevolent but certainly discomforting presence and so i saw some continuity between krishna and it comes at night and so i think shiva baby kind of is circling in the same waters there about the sort of how something as mundane as a family gathering could have this sort of like horrific degree of anxiety uh under the right circumstances trey edward schultz and uh, i agree with you because i'm a huge fan of shiva baby it's on my list here as far as one of these things go because it's designed to be it's designed to like directorial play directorially play as a psychological horror film it just happens to be a hysterical comedy um and yeah there's one sequence in particular that i believe is like when the when the wife the 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 wife and like child of the of the the sugar daddy character that that um that rachel sanat's character is secretly seeing when they're like all in a room present together like and there's a lot of things just escalating that's where the score is really like pushing it to like its maximum level and you can really like feel the world closing in around her even though again she's not te- she's not te- technically in any danger uh yeah it's it's very evocative of horror for sure but uh, i have uh, my own uh, runner-ups here and, and a winner um first is uh, the sequence where macbeth murders the king in macbeth in the tragedy of macbeth um mm. it's staged very effectively uh that's spoilers for people that don't know the story of Macbeth, by the way, I guess, as far as the first act is concerned. Um, but uh, there, it's... The, Joel Cohen knows how to stage ten sequences in his films, and this is very much one of them. Um, another yeah, scene... It's mm-hmm. a, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's not even a scene, it's a shot that a lesser filmmaker would have cut away from. Yes. You're talking about <clears throat> when he kills uh, King Duncan, right? Yes. Yeah, it's it's gruesome. Mm-hmm. It, it it doesn't need like it's the kind of movie where it's like it doesn't need to be R but like they went for it with the violence and um, it, it, it it's effective. Um, another one is um, in the Suicide Squad. There's a whole sequence involving the character of Starro who's locked away inside of a building, and there's a lot of very graphic imagery of the effect that these little starfish alien creatures have on people as far as latching themselves onto faces. And what happens when you remove them from people's faces? It's just some really grisly imagery, um, followed by like what you actually see Starro capable of doing. Um, that is, um, I mean, it's a it's a giant monster that's very uh, very deadly. <laughs> it delivers in that realm. One more is uh, before I get to my winner is um, the in the killing of two lovers. Um, there's uh-huh. a there's a lot of tension in that film, but there is an opening sequence that basically involves one character hovering around two other characters while they are sleeping and he's brandishing a gun um and it's i don't know like at the time it's like i don't know where this is going i don't know what this is going to lead to but certainly um 
uh, certainly a, a horrific feeling to have somebody watching over you, holding a weapon, and just not knowing what's going to happen next. With the title "The Killing," a, of, yeah. the killing of two lovers presenting itself on screen. That's a good one. I'd totally forgotten about that one. My winner, though, um, is from "The Power of the Dog," um, a film that has all kinds of tension. Mm. But the, the scene that I want to single out is where Rose is, Kirsten Dunst's character, Rose, she's practicing the piano because she wants to huh? practice piano and impress her husband's family and what have you. And you have Phil, Benedict Cumberbatch's character, upstairs with his fiddle, and he is tormenting her and torturing her just by playing all the same melodies that she's trying to play and even one-upping her by going even further. And it is just this back and forth and you hear it slowly in the background the fiddle playing and just see the looks of horror on rose's face because she's already being tortured by phil on the daily anyway and phil just relishing this chance to just dig and dig deeper at her it's a wonderful sequence that's such yeah. a dick move on phil's part but certainly has its own kind of horror vibe as far as somebody that's just this monster living upstairs that you can't get rid of it's a very menacing scene mm -hmm. um is it a fiddle or a banjo? Not that I know the difference, but <laughs> I—I is this band? Maybe it's a banjo. I think I said this on the actual episode too that I said it's a fiddle and it's actually a banjo. <laughs> or no, I believe it's a fiddle. It's not. I think I said a violin on the other podcast. It's but it's yeah, yeah. I think it might be a banjo. I think the the runner up that I find myself you know nodding my head in agreement with the most is Macbeth because. I didn't think of that scene, but I was thinking of there's some great imagery, uh, like the witches. I thought yep. the witches were spot on in this. Uh, mm -hmm. Or I, I should say witch. witch because it's, yeah. I think Ka it's one, Ka one Catherine person. Hunter playing one, all three witches. Yes. Incredible. Um, and of all the interpretations of this I've seen, that one really worked for me. Um, and then the film is kind of gorgeous through and through, but yeah. some of some of the imagery that lends itself toward horror, uh, they really it's, knocked it out of the park. It's very stark and evocative. There's a lot of like laying in it for sure, as far as like, the angles and use of shadows. Yes, that, that one seems to be. Yeah, that's that one seems to be a, a shoe win for at least a cinematography nomination. Oh yeah, when we get around to that, yeah, for sure. Yeah, uh, was it Bruno Bruno Del Bono, I believe. Now we get to, you know what, before we get to some of these major categories, I wanted to throw in uh, some other ones that we didn't maybe necessarily take as much time to think about. But, like, you have any thoughts on, like, best cinematography? Any cinematography options? Um, apart from the things we're just sort of shouting out as we go, mm -hmm. uh, the, the one film I wanted to mention that I, I don't, I, I suspect will not come up in any of our uh, other categories is from a movie called The Deep House. Mm -hmm. It's about these... Uh, these i don't know vloggers basically who scuba dive down into this house that's submerged and it turns out to be haunted but it's got just really really great underwater cinematography um you're, you're down in this submerged dilapidated house and it's both kind of familiar because you've, you've got a kitchen you've got all the sort of trappings of a normal house and yet it's underwater and creepy and there's the things that eventually emerge from the darkness and the whole thing is just kind of it's not a great movie but it's really impressive to look at hmm. that's my that's my upvote um honestly Candyman, um i think is an incredibly well shot movie like as many is whatever issues i have for it i think its technical aspects are pretty excellent and the thing i think of specifically whenever i think of Candyman is its opening credit sequence where the original film is this bird's eye view that you're looking down on the streets of chicago while philip glass is 
uh, score plays. And there's a new one. Uh, you have the camera pointing upwards at the sky, uh, which is really cool and just a fun play on how the original worked. Um, and I, I mean, among other, you know, it's a very slickly made film. There's a lot of really great shots throughout the film that kind of portray the different uh, sites that you're seeing. But that opening credit sequence in particular really stuck out to me. Another film I wanted to point out is Gaia. Did you see Gaia? In fact, I was thinking of that for um, makeup effects. I really uh, like some of the mushrooms. Uh, I agree. I thought I thought of that too. There, I didn't quite put it in, but that was another one I thought of. But there's a lot of really good photography in that film as well that I really liked, and some like use of drone shots too early on that I thought were really effective. How about a uh, score? Any any memorable scores for you? Uh, nothing comes to mind other than what I mentioned with Shiva Baby. Okay. Um, what about you? Maybe maybe if you jog my memory. Uh, once again, Candyman thought, okay, thought of that. I think the score for Candyman is really good. Um, I, 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 Stephen Price's collaborations with um, Edgar Wright, I think, are always pretty solid. So I, I did like the Soho score quite a bit. In addition, in addition to the soundtrack uh, that we get with the film, and um, James Wan likes going big with his music. So Malignant certainly has a score um, that makes itself very apparent uh, uh, throughout the film. My favorite song cue of the year is uh, the reference to the Macarena in Titan, just because it's <laughs> abs- absurd and funny. But All right. Uh, let's move into some of these major categories. Let's do uh, Best Supporting Actress. Who's your, be- who's your runner-up and winner for Best Supporting Actress? Okay, so I've got a runner-up and I've got a winner. And I, I'm not sure if this counts because the film is a couple years old um what? but was formally <laughs> formally released this year okay uh, it's uh it's saint maud it's jennifer oh, ailey and uh, saint maud that's um, funny okay that's your runner-up uh yeah uh, i wasn't sure just because I, I don't know when you saw it i saw it last year and i know people who saw it even a year earlier but it, it's i i think jennifer ailey is a very underrated actor overall and i felt this performance didn't get as much love um, indeed the film itself kind of got swallowed up by the sort of shuffled release dates because of the pandemic so i wanted to mm-hmm. uh draw people's attention to that if they haven't seen it <clears throat> um my top though goes to someone named athena parample i believe that's how it's pronounced she plays the zombie queen in army of the dead um <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> yeah she's the first major zombie figure we're introduced to once they go over the wall Mm-hmm. And so it's it's got to it's got to have that impact, right, to to absorb us into the stakes of the film, and and she's terrific. Uh, it's an entirely physical performance. She's obviously a dancer or a gymnast of some sort. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I I didn't really love Army of the Dead, but this was for me the most memorable part of it. Um, there's some melodrama that pokes out later about her relationship with the big zombie daddy or whatever the hell. But in terms of just sheer screen presence, I, I enjoyed this character quite a bit. I entirely agree with you. And it's one that I certainly considered because yes, you're right. Like it's, it's a zombie. So it's like, it's not a, <laughs> it's not a, uh, it's, you know, the performance doesn't extend beyond physicality, but I believe it's very, it's very effective. Um, my, uh, the other, um, the other runner-up I had um, is Anya Taylor-Joy for Last Night in Soho, because um, she's rather effective. I mean, w- what the film has her do, um, I, I think, is rather effective. Uh, but my winner is your runner-up. It's Jennifer Ely in Saint Maud. I, I think it's a I think it's a great a great performance in a film that's really solid. I did I didn't see it until this year. Um, I was like ready to see it last year, and then yeah, it got delayed, obviously. Um, uh-huh. But I do think the, you know, in the in the midst of 
what's going on with the lead character, which we'll probably hear about again later on, I do think uh, Ely's supporting role as this kind of bedridden, um, or at least somewhat bedridden character that's dealing with things and the different kind of emotional states that she's put in is very effective for the film. So. All right. Best... Hey, but we're in agreement. <laughs> exactly. Uh, best supporting actor. Supporting actor. So with the runner up, I decided to go with, uh, I believe it's pronounced Bjorn Haraldson, who plays, plays the estranged brother in Lamb. Hmm, um, okay. I mean, uh, Frank, I don't, I don't know to what extent I'm willing to call Lamb a horror movie. I, that's a little iffy to me. Um, but I think the brother character, who's the sort of third character in the film, he does, I think, a lot more heavy lifting than people might give credit uh, for as the audience's avatar, right? Because his, um, how do I put it? His his acclamation to the strange circumstances of the story c- comprise a lot of the dramatic stakes of the film. And so he, he's the character who does have to perform on a number of registers, right, from sort of incredulity to confusion to eventual acceptance. And I thought that worked really well. And in, in, the of midst of, good... in the midst of communicating this kind of like history that we don't entirely know as far as their, his relationship right. to the other characters. Yeah. I thought that was a really welcome sort of narrative presence. And, you know, you kind of have to go along with what, uh, what he's seeing as this sort of very profoundly weird situation. Mm-hmm. Uh, I thought that that worked really great. Um, so that's a runner up, but for uh, for the top spot, it's got to be Vincent Lindon in uh, Titan. Uh, I'm already a fan. Um, he's maybe my favorite French actor working today, um, but he often plays these everyman characters. And to see him in something this bananas and playing so far against type was really interesting to me. And it struck me as what had to have been a very deliberate and provocative casting choice. Uh, the fact that he's also like completely jacked in this film was also a <laughs> fascination. It was a point of fascination because uh, the types of, you know, because of the types of roles he typically plays and the kinds of questions about masculinity that this casting choice raises, which are, of course, central to what the film is preoccupied with overall. It just made it a um, it, it, it his presence in the film gave it added layers for me that I really enjoyed. So that's that's my easy, easy top spot. See, I, I struggled with this because I think he's the best. He's a lead actor. Like <laughs> it's hard for me to think of him as a. Yeah, supporting. you know, I did, I did, I did wonder about that. He's certainly in it enough to mm-hmm. get um, lead, but I, you know, I needed, I needed to put him somewhere. So. Sure. Um, I um, well, I have to, It's weird. Like, so there's two films called. There's Gaia, which I mentioned in the Earth. Did you see in the Earth? Yes. Okay, so they're. They're both kind of like eco horror films, is a way to phrase it. And they're, they're they both have various performances I really enjoyed. I think Carol Nell in Gaia, who's like this not feral man, but like he's he's kind of a he's he's living in the nature. He's the there there's like a man and like his his son. He's the he's the father in the scenario. I think he's very good with what he has to do um, in Gaia. Um, but there's also this character named or played by Reese Shearsmith in In the Earth who is basically like the chaotic character in that film. He's he's not necessarily like, the, I guess he's somewhat the villain, but it's more of just he's been affected by the the, the world that he's living in and in the Earth, a film that's basically about a pandemic uh, that's run wild and it was shot during a pandemic. Um, but I, I think um, for whatever issue I have with that film, I think he's very effective um, with what he's doing. But my winner 
um, is Killian Murphy from A Quiet Place Part Two. Um, mm. I think Killian Murphy is a very good actor. I think he um, is consistently uh, uh, great in things, even though the, the projects themselves aren't uh, the best. Uh, but if he's going, he serves almost as like a replacement for John Krasinski's character this time around. But I think Kelly Murphy's a much better actor than John Krasinski, so I was uh, very won over uh, by what he's kind of put through in this in this journey that he's on with Millicent Simmons' character. I uh, quite by too. I do think there's an interest. The, the it's not the it's not the like the freshest of arcs that a character can have, but I do think he's able to do a lot with um, what little's kind of supplied about him in the the course of the movie as we're introduced to his character. Yeah, I thought. I don't know if this is fair that if you if you see it the same way, but I thought one of the sort of interesting tensions that's generated by that character uh, by virtue of his casting is that you're you're not quite clear whether he's going to betray the little girl or whether he's going to turn against them in some capacity, right? And I feel like that's mainly because Killian Murphy has played villains before and he he does have kind of a menacing look to him. Mm-hmm. Um, he, uh, he can he's, he can. he's yeah. kind of a Beautiful, uh, he's kind of a beautiful man, but he 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 he's got something. He can turn evil. He has an edge uh, pretty to him. convincingly, right? Yeah, and so I feel like the film does play with some subtle tensions about whether or not this guy can be trusted. For uh, sure, but all, and all, at the same time, the introduction to him as an actor to most of the world was, uh, you know, him in a a Last Man on Earth movie, uh, Twenty Eight Days Later, where he's he's very much the the purest ah, right. of characters. Yeah, yeah. So so uh, that's why uh, it's. I, I, because I don't disagree with you. It is the kind of he's not quite in the I always suspect him realm in the same way that like Guy Pierce is. But I do like I, I'm not I wasn't I wasn't entirely clear on right. where his yeah. character's arc would be going based off the fact that yes yeah, he guy, does. Guy, <laughs> yeah, if you Guy if you Pierce, Guy Pierce will betray you. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so no, yeah, I, I do think that the I think the movie does know how to use him as far as an, an uneasy alliance. Um, before uh, reckoning with like whether or not he's going to be a ostensibly good guy or an ostensibly bad guy. All right, uh, next category we have here. Here's a fun one: best kill, best kill of the year in a horror film. <laughs> Mike, what are your what's your runner-ups and your winner for this category? Well, I strongly suspect we have the same winner, but uh, here are my runner-ups. Um, my my main runner-up is any really any of the kills from Jacob's wife. Yeah, I mean, this maybe spills over into praise for the makeup effects more than anything, but it's one of the films this year that had among sort of the most garish blood gushing effects. Like they really turned on the spray to full power whenever a person gets their throat ripped open. This is a vampire film. The effect is is very entertaining and and fun. And the movie kind of knows that it's being silly at the same time. Um, So purposefully entertaining throughout. And uh, so that's that's one. Another runner up is. Uh, I thought some of the kills in Slacks were amusing, <laughs> yeah. uh, just just because they're they're so dumb, right? This is this is where a uh, possessed, I guess, is it possessed or I don't know, some uh, the, evil. It's the Killer Jeans, jeans movie. <laughs> yeah, that comes alive and starts literally consuming people who wear it, and so that that's kind of a fun one. Um, I like that it cleaned up after the kill. <laughs> that's what got me. I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. So silly, silly, silly. But so the winner, it really just has to be Candyman, um, the art critic mm-hmm. who uh, gets hers. Um, it, it's not just what happens, but it, it's shot from afar in a way that's just very effective and creepy. And uh, yeah, that's that's when when we added this category, this was the first thing that came to mind. 
it's it was I mean it's in my runner-ups and it certainly was the, okay. one of the easily the first things that came to mind for me as far as this category goes because it's a great death and it's well it's a well shot one for sure. I'm surprised you didn't mention Psycho Goreman's like ultimate kill where he like opens his jaws wide open and like feasts on people. <laughs> that would be right well, up your he, alley. Yeah, he uh, yeah he he eats his uh, vanquished enemies. That's the whole running joke of that. Yeah, yeah. I mean that that's it, a runner. Like for the sure. gory. I mean, speaking of spray, like the goriest way possible to do so. <laughs> well, what's what's really clever about that film is that. Uh, the film knows when to emphasize the gore and when to cut away from it. And mm-hmm. if you actually watch uh, that last consuming his enemy scene, mm-hmm. the, the the camera knows that the real comedy is in watching people's reactions to how macabre this really is. So you don't really get a good look at what's going on. And that's probably a budgetary thing as well. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, it's, it's not just a good kill. It's also very funny in the way they kind yeah. of deliver it. So the timing of it. For sure. Um, another... Another like Halloween kills is pretty packed with kills. <laughs> like it's it's a uh, pretty uh-huh. heavy on the on the death factor there. Um, there's two in particular that I really well. One is how Michael Myers versus the firefighters. Um, the way he kind of approaches the scene where he's like, "All right, bring it on," and just goes on to like destroy like seven firefighters in one go. Um, but there's another where, which is like a payoff from the previous film where Michael Myers goes after the boyfriend character of of um the the youngest strode um who we learn is like cheating on her in the previous film and somehow he lives and is like oh okay so this is the film where he gets his comeuppance basically and michael myers proceeds to like beat him stab him he rams his head through like the stairway like the or like oh the, that one like, okay. like, yeah, like yeah. he like rams his head through the like the banisters essentially and then as he's walking down the stairs he stops looks at the looks at the strode girl and like puts his hands on the boyfriend's head and snaps his neck <laughs> as like a power move it's like michael myers obviously doesn't show a lot of emotion he's michael myers but it does feel like there are very pointed ways he's using his abilities in that movie which is pretty wild um now, now when he takes out the firefighters if i recall there's a shot that's through the the, the mask, mask of the firefighter yeah Right? There's like a POV? Okay. Yeah. yeah, I remember. There's good stuff in there. <laughs> yeah, there's there's also one of Michael Myers' first victims as he's sort of, he makes his way out of the fire, or is mm-hmm. this old couple, and yes. they're like playing with a drone for some reason. Yeah. The, the, the kills in that scene, I thought were pretty great. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but my, uh, well. Good kills, bad movie. Good kills, okay movie. Ambitious movie. But, um... <laughs> Uh, Malignant obviously has this whole jail cell murder spree okay. that Gabriel goes on that's very effective, and Zoe Bell is doing a lot of work um, playing. For, for anybody, movie. yeah, for anybody who likes the John Wick movies but thought, what would this be like in reverse? <laughs> yeah, basically. <laughs> uh, but my winner uh, for this category is this um, this death in, in my least of the Fear Street movies, Fear Street Part 1, 1994, this bread slicer kill. That's incredibly memorable where this this girl is on a, on like the she's being pushed towards this bread slicer. And part of you is like, I don't want this young girl to die. But the other part of you is like, I really want to see what this bread slicer is going to look like if it murders somebody right now. And it it proceeds to do exactly that. And it's very gory and very extreme. And now it shows what a bread slicer can do to somebody's head. Um, it's 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 good horror stuff. 
I completely forgot about that one. I do remember seeing that thinking, good kill. Yeah, <laughs> there you go. Yeah, that's a good one. <laughs> There's another one. Um, I won't give away the details if you haven't seen it, but I mentioned the Slumber Party Massacre mm-hmm. remake uh, reimagining. It has one good kill involving the hood of a car okay. that I thought it's, it's nothing particularly elaborate, but I did think, oh, this is new. Mm-hmm. That's something I hadn't quite seen done quite that way. So it, that, that's a good one. Isn't it? Sad Look for that, that if you catch up with. Isn't it sad that we didn't include uh, Spiral from the Book of Saw in the best kill category? Like there wasn't one good enough for this. Oh, did they make a new Saw movie? <laughs> <laughs> that's cool. Uh, okay. Yeah, no good kills. We talked about it on that episode. We said like this, none of the kills were good. Yeah, they in were, my mind, I think the first one, the the one, the cold open. Yeah, with the, the, train sub, the was, subway. Yeah, that was that was fine. It Was all right. Yeah, but the rest were eh. not, that, not that great. There's some ideas, but even the execution just wasn't that elaborate. Um, anyway, which 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 bear in mind is a major betrayal for a saw movie. We, you know, it's got to have the kills. Good games. All right, so. Let's move on now. Next is our best director. Who's the who's your best director? What are your runner-ups and winner for best director? So runner-up is uh, Nia DaCosta for Candyman. You know, we, we alluded to it earlier. I have some quibbles with the film, but not with her direction, which is incredible. Um, at, at some points, there's almost like a Kubrickian use of like symmetry and claustrophobia. And of course, there's a Cronenbergian component to the body horror. Mm-hmm. Her... Naya Costa's camera is so precise in just capturing dread and 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 the weight uh, of what's going on. So I thought this was maybe the most impressively and skillfully directed horror film I've certainly seen all year. Um, the reason she's a runner up is because at the same time, you have to concede that as a studio film, it, it does have a larger budget and a larger set of resources to make an impressive film. So, you know, that's why it's runner up. But the way I've chosen to uh, interpret the my favorite pick is like who's the person whose next film I'm most excited to see. Hmm, okay. So Naya DaCosta, like she's off doing a Marvel film, right? The Marvels. Um, the Marvel, yeah. So really happy for her. That's really awesome. But that's like less interesting to me. So I have a, a runner-up and then my ultimate sort of gold. So my runner-up is a movie called Shadow in the Cloud. Okay. The director. Yeah, Roseanne Liang. She's a Chinese New Zealander. Mm-hmm. Um, if people don't know, I mean, the movie isn't spectacular. Is it Chloe? I agree. Is... I don't think it's spectacular, but yeah. No, no, it's not. Not at all. She's in a World War II bomber fighting a gremlin. It's absolute B movie nonsense. But um, I think this director. I, I hope anyway that she's going places. If you haven't seen it, what I recommend you check out is this um, a short film she put out called Do No Harm which is an action film sort of in the vein of John Wick. And it's excellent. <clears throat> so she's someone who, to me, strikes me as someone who clearly has a good grasp of like action design. And so strictly going by my criteria of whose film do I want to see next, I, I really hope she gets to keep making stuff and someone hires her to do something sort of action-packed and, 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 uh, and fun. Because I think there's a lot of talent there. But my winner is... Um, is a movie called Eight for Silver, huh. which was a Sundance movie. I don't think it's since been picked up. So I don't, I don't know if that's allowed since your listeners can't go and find it right away. But the director of this movie is uh, Sean Ellis. This is a, a werewolf movie set in the late 19th century. Oh, okay. Yeah, I remember which movie this is. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's got a few few issues, but it's it's great. It clearly knows how to stage 
since we're talking about a director here, uh, the director really knows how to stage horror for just maximum effect. And he's doing this sort of in shots that are held really long and patient at a distance. He's got some close-up stuff. He's got jump scares. He's got stuff without jump scares, just relying on tension. Um, this movie really had it all for me. I thought this was fantastic. And I'm really puzzled as to why someone hasn't uh, gobbled it up because it's such a great calling card for this uh, for this director. He's Sean done, Ellis. He's done a few things, right? He did um, Anthropoid a few years back, um, which I enjoyed. They also did Cashback, like way back in mid 2000s. Um, I don't think I know that film, but yeah, so I'm just I'm I'm a little puzzled as to why, as far as I know, this one hasn't gotten a distributor yet. But hopefully it will, and maybe 2022 we'll we'll get to see it, and I can get to rewatch it because there's a bunch of things in here that I thought were great visual effects or or makeup effects, and I thought I don't know which one they were, and I can't really go back and take a look. So I saw it um, at virtual Sundance a year ago, which means I haven't seen it in a long time, and. It's got some great stuff. I just couldn't quite pinpoint what 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 the details were. But overall, yeah, loved it. Um, I have a few. Nita Costa is certainly one of them for Candyman as well, because I do think it's such a technically excellent film as far as the the way it's been constructed, the design, and what have you. Um, and I'm I'm trying not to like play too much favorites here. So Edgar Wright's a runner up as well, because I do think. I mean, even if you have issues with like story direction, I do think from a technical standpoint, there's a lot of there's a lot of ambitious work being done to to throw this character through the loop, through Eloise's character through the loop, um, and, and merging the two different time periods or what have you, and, and incorporating like a lot of visual visual style and some inventive camera ideas and visual effects or what have you. And then I'm surprised you didn't mention Julia DeCorno for um, for Tatane, um, as far as the, kind of just coming up with something like that and having a way of maximizing the things that it's doing um ultimately no, I, I split the difference and gave it screenplay that's kind of that was my my logic there mm -hmm. fair enough um but honestly i mean maybe you could also say most direction but really i mean james wan for malignant is my best director pick i mean it's such a it's a movie that like entirely works because of how much he's trying to throw at you as a filmmaker um, this kind of I love this energy of I'm in between Aquaman movies and I've decided I'm going to just put all of my energy into this throwback horror film that combines like 90 action 90s action movies with Italian cinema with Italian horror cinema and, and just like and like my own sensibilities that I've brought into my past films and just run wild with it. I think it's a, an absolute blast um, from a filmmaker standpoint. Um, something that oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I didn't realize this was most over directed movie. <laughs> Edgar Wright, James Wan, we are, we are, we had different interpretations of this. No, I'm with you. That I mean, I, I appreciate how much shit that movie throws at the wall. It, it, it's, it's bringing it. I mean, it's like, I, and I, I, I really. Yeah. I, I enjoy I enjoy that film because of the direction. I think that's a huge like a, a huge aspect of the film, um, and it's it, it, I mean it's very deliberate in what it's doing. Like, if it, is it over directed? Sure, that's the intent to begin with. It's not it's not like it was like oh, let's take this modest story and like do do what you know do it up. It's like no, we took this extreme thing and we applied the direction that seemed to apply to the story that's being told here. So I, I think James Wan is a, a clear winner for me this time around. I'm in the midst of other directors that I don't think you know did a really good job with the movies that they had. 
one other film uh, that I know is a debut for the director. Did you see Caveat? No. It's an Irish horror film. It's it, it has a premise that's kind of preposterous, but in terms of it's it's not another kind of haunted house type story. Uh, in terms of the ability to kind of generate scares and mind on a really small budget, I thought it was pretty effective. So that's another director that I hope gets to do something else. Uh, Damien McCarthy is the uh, director's name. All right. Next up, uh, Best Actress. We were runner-ups and winner for Best Actress. So, funnily enough, uh, Nita Josie Hanna from Psycho Gorman. Okay. <laughs> I think it's just wonderful. I'll put that, I'll put that in a runner-up because we, we already discussed it. Um, since we mentioned Jennifer Ailey from St. Maud, I guess the uh, best actress. I don't really feel confident pronouncing her name. M- Morphide Clark is probably it's completely different. Anyway, the main girl from uh, from St. Maud is uh, Jennifer Ailey is on our list, and she she belongs on there as well. But so my main my main two, the runner up and the winner. So I wanted to point out uh, an actress named Madeline Sims Fuhrer who co-directs and is the star of a movie called Violation, okay. which is this really grim, brutal movie, um, a sort of a rape and revenge story. And it's a character without kind of going into the details because it's like immediate spoiler territory. It, it's a character who has to go through some really rough material. And so it's a role that requires a lot from the actor. And I was really impressed by the the, the commitment. So it's it's a really powerful performance for a really difficult film to sit through um but the the winner for me uh the one i wanted to kind of draw people's attention to is an actress named uh, gracie gillum who plays the main villain in a horror comedy called Superhost. okay uh so full disclosure this film was written and directed by my friend brandon christensen um it's about two vloggers who host like an airbnb travel channel and they uh are staying in a house uh, hosted by this character played by Gracie Gillum, who turns out to be a killer. And it's it's a very funny, very wackadoodle performance. Um, so I hope people give it the credit I think it deserves. This is not like Lupita from Us or Tony Collette from Hereditary, right? She, I mean, uh, those are like genuine snubs by the awards community uh, at, at the time. Um, it's, it's not on that level, but this is a, a really fun movie and her performance is the most fun thing about it. So I, I hope people go check it out. And this is another shutter movie. If people don't know. All right. Um, and my picks, my runner ups. Yes. Include St. Maud's, uh, Morford Clark, um, Annabelle Wallace in malignant. Um, I think is a, there's a very physical aspect of that performance that I think is going to go overlooked, but I mean, uh, as well as the, you know, the dramatic side of it is, is extreme as necessary, but I do think there's a lot of other stuff going on there as well. Uh, newer... although, although, can I ask though? I feel like the most physically demanding stuff is clearly not her. Yeah. Right? So that's... I wonder. But I do think there's a there's a toll that the, the kind of emotion you have to put yourself through. I mean, I think that 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 arrives in the physical aspect of it as well. But yes, I'm worried about there's like a stunt person involved in certain aspects of the, the film for, for that's why it's not a winner. Um, solely because of that. <laughs> but, um, but I thought it was worth pointing out. Um, Numi Rapaz in Lamb um, as well. And um, Rebecca Hall in The Night House is my winner. Um, huh. A movie I... I I like I like I don't I'm not a huge fan of the Night House in the way some others are but I do like the film quite a bit but I do think her performance is incredibly strong she has to lead the entire film 
um, as a as a character who's going through a, a complicated level of grief uh, based off mystery surrounding her deceased husband. Um, the way she reveals that in a certain scene, uh, she plays a teacher. Uh, the way she reveals that to a parent who's like badgering her about her son's grades, I think is great. Um, it's one of the like most awkward conversations that I've heard this year in a movie. Um, but it really is, it's a testament to just how strong the performance is, um, which carries throughout the film as far as the kind of emotional turmoil she's put in as she has to deal with this odd, perhaps ghost story that's taking place in the midst of dealing with the grief that she's suffering from. That's so funny because that's the exact scene that I didn't like. You didn't um, like that scene? I, I think I'm, oh my God. I, I'm, I'm with you. I'm with you. I think the performance is fantastic, but that specific scene you're isolating felt like an exposition dump to me. And so I, I, I wasn't quite on board with it. Oh, I thought it was great. <laughs> as far as like how to shut this person up that's talking to her. I thought it was wonderful. Um, right. I'm with you though. The movie is, uh, didn't love it, mm-hmm. but I'm with you on the performance. Well, let's get to best actor. Who do you have for best actor for runner-up and winner? Okay, so for a comic turn, I'm going to go with uh, Sam Richardson and Werewolves Within. I also have Sam I, Richardson I, for Werewolves Within. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't I don't know that I know his work. Um, maybe he's in stuff that I'm not aware of um, that I've seen, but I thought... So, in effect, this was kind of my introduction to Sam Richardson as far as I'm aware, and I thought he was quite charming and fun. But my So my real runner-up, I'm going back to Coming Home in the Dark, this actor named Daniel Gillies, I believe it's pronounced, who plays the main villain. Again, it's a really brutal and dark film, and this character is sort of the instigator of it all. Like, think Rutger Hauer in The Hitcher. That's kind of where my mind goes. Um, quite memorable. And, you know, he's kind of he's got these handsome leading man qualities, so I'm sure he's he can do a whole bunch of things. But um, as sort of a menacing, mysterious uh psychopath whose motivations are not clear until later in the film it's 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 very very good but uh ultimately though i'm going to give it to this actor who again i'd never seen before named dave davies <clears throat> he's in a film called the vigil mm-hmm. yeah uh, film, yeah it's it's about a guy who has recently left his i think hasidic uh, jewish community but then he yeah. as a favorite friend yeah he gets roped into standing vigil for a corpse and then weird stuff starts to happen and it's not a one-person movie but he is alone for like large sections of the film and so he it's up to him to kind of carry it which he does it's a it's an impressive performance from from i I believe unknown actor and so the, the subject matter was interesting to me the approach to kind of what was essentially a haunted house film all was kind of fascinating and you know insofar as he's the center of it i I just wanted to kind of give this one a nod. No, it was a fun surprise for me with the vigil. Uh, Manashi shows up <laughs> from the from the movie Manashi. <laughs> so it's in the universe, huh? Yeah, that's what I assumed. It was the same universe. He's in the Manashi. The vigil's in the Manashi universe. <laughs> the Manashiverse, as I call it. Um, yeah. Or, Sam- wait, can we call it the 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 Juniverse? The- <laughs> Is that insensitive? I don't know. No, because we'll get it. Con- we'll get it confused for the Junoverse, um, which is uh, for a movie set in Alaska. Uh, but um, I, I did have Sam Richardson um, as a runner-up because I do think he's great in Werewolves Within. He's a great uh, lead and a, 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 a deliberate choice that I really admired. Um, I'm surprised you didn't see him before. He's on. A, he was in the HBO series Veep. He's one of the characters there. He's hysterical. He's He's a big comedic actor. He's, he's he pops up in a lot of comedic films as as of late. And he's um 
uh, he uh, he had a show called Detroiters with a comedian Tim Robinson, um, who and Tim Robinson's gone on to have his own comedic short show, and Sam Robinson, Sam Richardson's uh, appeared on that show quite a bit. But no, he's a he's a really funny guy. But I also thought he was a really good lead for that film. Um, as far as my uh, as far as my winner goes. I'm a big fan of Yahya Abdul-Mateen II, and him and Candyman, I was really excited to see what he'd bring to that. And I, I think it's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of tricky work there as far as who he's playing and what he's playing into and how, where the turns take him in that movie. Um, but I do think he brings a, he brings a unique presence to it and a, and a solid lead uh, that's, Distinct from the original by being, you know, the first black lead in a Candyman movie, um, but um, uh, it was it's effective. And it, it, to see him kind of basically decay into what happens, I, I thought worked rather well um, uh, for mm-hmm. for what he, for what he was bringing to that movie. Um, he's also Morpheus, right? And he's new Morpheus. Yes. Yeah. The, yeah. Two point yeah, He's had a <laughs> yeah. He's had a good year. He's had a good few. I mean, Although, he, I think... he's had a good few years. I mean, he he won an Emmy for Watchmen, and it's been popping up in a lot of things here and there. Oh my God, that's right. So he's he's Doctor Manhattan, he's husband. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Doctor Morpheus. Oh, wow, yeah. <laughs> Although I think Morpheus is arguably the weakest character in Matrix Resurrections, which I loved, by the way. But I, yeah, that I mean, character doesn't doesn't really go anywhere. It's he's more of like he's like a gateway kind of character in the beginning, and then just is less important by comparison later on in the film, but I still think he's rather effective. Well, the reason I linked the two is because that's two, two movies this year in which he's kind of stepping into some pretty big shoes. Yes. Mm -hmm. Um, Obviously there's kind of added weight with Candyman because it's, it's, he needs to be there to correct like the one major sort of problem with the original, which is that the story of black trauma is seen through the eyes of this privileged white lady, mm-hmm. um, Virginia Madsen's character. So that's that's a sticking point, which this new film kind of has to step around. But and then, of course, you're stepping into you're, you're the new Lawrence Fishburne. That's a big deal. And so I think in both cases, yeah, he's 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 in, he equips himself well. enjoyed watching. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, we've arrived at the big category. Best picture. Best horror picture. Oh, are we at the end already? We are. We've made it. We made it to the end. That's right. We we got past all the montages and special ceremonies and what have you. Um, so for this one, I did I did say we should have like four, or like we should have like five nominees and one winner. What were your What are your nominees for best picture and and your winner? So you want me to go all through and then do the winner as well, or yeah, yeah. give you my nominees and then you do? All right, I'll go through it then. So I did have four. And then the one at the end. So my runner, my runner, uh, runner is up, runner, runner ups. Mm-hmm. Um, first is uh, my, my heart can't beat unless you tell it to. Uh, it's a vampire film. It's, it's, it's kind of actually more of a family drama. It's about a adult brother and sister who have to tend to their younger brother who is a vampire. Uh, very good, very quiet, effective little psychological horror slash drama uh i think it's a really great example of what you can do on a small budget so that's uh one of them uh the other is a movie called lucky oh okay uh, it's with uh bria grant i think she's one of the more interesting people working in horror right now and she's also versatile she writes and directs and she directed and this film actor. right or she she just no, write, no, she, so she wrote that she directed the other she, one yeah, she, yeah okay 
Uh, she the the most recent thing she directed is called Twelve Hour Shift. Yeah, which that's is the dark good. comedy. It's, that's that's yeah. really fun. So she she wrote and stars in this one, but didn't direct. Um, anyway, so it's a supernatural slasher film, kind of reframed as a sort of feminist allegory. So it's 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 subversive and at times quite intelligent. It does have its budget constraints, but um, I do love seeing more and more female voices in the genre of late. And of those, this was the one that I liked uh, the most this past year. Um, the next one is a, a, a horror comedy from the UK called Benny Loves You. It's about a man's uh, an adult man's childhood stuffed animal who comes to life and starts killing people. It's utterly deranged. Finally. Very, very. <laughs> yeah. What's that? Finally. One of those. It's, it's like an evil toy story. It's very fun. Hmm. Um, and then, so my, my last runner up is, is Psycho Gorman. Um, it's my biggest runner up and, and it's actually one of my absolute horror, not horror, whatever. My favorite films of the year period. It's, it's the film that I think gave me the most pleasure this year, um, not just in watching it and rewatching it, but also introducing it to friends. I've also uh, added it to a syllabus for a class I teach on on uh, cult cinema. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, just absolutely delightful uh, movie that I, that I intend to have a relationship with both personally and professionally in the years to come. And so that's, that's a big deal. Um, but that said, I wanted to give the top sort of, uh, uh, praise here. My best picture in the horror genre this year is Phil Tippett's Mad God. Hmm. I don't really know what the availability of this movie is moving forward, but this is a uh, stop motion animation film that Phil Tippett has been working on over the course of over 30 years. Uh, it's a bit abstract and I'm not entirely sure I got it all. It, it's a movie you kind of what, give yourself over to an experience more than uh, sort of follow the plot. Um, but I gather it is about an assassin who kind of descends into this nightmare landscape filled with monsters and weird characters. And it's really one of the most unique things I've seen all year. Um, so between that and my love for Phil Tippett and just the, the kind of the story behind this movie's long production and gestation and and just kind of like this laying bare of whatever demons Phil Tippett's clearly been working through for years and years now is just a. Uh, praiseworthy and just i really applaud this movie for what it is and and how it got made well that's what i'm very excited to eventually see because I, I remember hearing about that but i haven't been able to catch up with it as of yet and i missed my it's, it's opportunity to it's see very it. cool and it's very cool very weird and just uh yeah it's it's uh unlike unlike anything i've seen all right well very cool okay my nominees i have for for best uh best horror film of the year uh, Tatane uh, is on there. I mean, it's it, we, we talked about it already, but it's an off the off the wall <laughs> art house piece <laughs> that inspires a lot of different thoughts on like what's going on, what the meaning behind it all is. Um, Saint Maud uh, came up. I I can go here either way on um, religious horror, uh, just because mainly there's there's not much there's not much Jewish horror. There was the Vigil this year, which was uh, quite good. I enjoyed the Vigil, but um, the the kind of the thing that it's going for rarely gets to me in a scary sense but saint mod i think had a real great level of patience and a way to make what's happening relatable and interesting um and worked at it as a, a great way to like just build up to whatever it builds up to um, and i found it to be quite affecting um and 
you you're you're given the option to like feel certain ways about the 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 character the lead character and what what they're going through and especially as you learn more about her um, I, I found that to be really just really effective overall uh malignant um is a nominee for all the reasons i've already stated before i just think it's a gonzo horror picture coming out of warner brothers that i was really happy to see um uh, have the chance to exist just because James Wan's like, look, I made you a billion dollars for Aquaman. Let me do something before I make another one of these. Uh, Candyman, um, for all its flaws, I do think the movie invites so much conversation just from its general premise and what it's going for. Um, it's enough that I, I think, I think it stands out um, for wanting to be about something, um, even if it's doesn't quite know how to pull it entirely off there's just there's too much there to not want to like recognize that i i greatly appreciated the the other one i want i wanted to bring in here because it just feels like this kind of despite its whatever limitations it might have and both in acting and in terms of how it kind of pulls off this blood red sky um <laughs> I, I like this kind of like story of it's like uh reluctant Nosferatu-ish vampire lady who gets pulled into a diehard scenario on a plane. I I was just, like, it's overlong, um, but, like, it, I think that just adds to this, like, scope of a movie like this that absolutely does not need to work as effectively as it does, and yet I couldn't, like, <laughs> not be compelled uh, by what was taking place and the way it was mixing this kind of, you know, action thriller tone with the idea of a character that's the, the 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 kind of vampire they are which very much is feels like it's designed in line with like a nosferatu type vampire um i thought this movie was just mm -hmm. it was a blast to watch um and just had a lot going for it um d despite any like minor issues i might have had but my winner which should be easy enough for me because last night in soho uh, it's one of my favorite movies of the year so i mean it's hard not to <laughs> like i'd say that like this by it's my best picture. Like I, I, I am a huge fan of Edgar Wright. I think he, I, I was, I was big on how he went about doing something that was different for him, uh, yet certainly in, in, in line with the sort of style he brings to his films and like what the things he wants to explore and how he wants to pay homage to all the films that he sees. I think he does a lot of uh, really fun stuff and really interesting and engaging things. Um, with Last Night in Soho and how he uh, addresses the topics he's doing while bringing in this kind of time warp scenario and what have you. So no, it's 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 my winner here uh, amidst many other films that I thought were all really good. It's all right. <laughs> <laughs> Blood Red Sky, though, that's uh, you turned me on to that movie. Mm -hmm. <laughs> which I, I enjoyed, although it's it's a good 20 minutes too long. Maybe maybe more, maybe 30 minutes too long. It needs to be tighter. But it needs I to be tighter, yeah, but it's... How, how ridiculous it's high concept premises mm -hmm. um i was actually thinking about that for a number of categories i just couldn't remember the details enough and i didn't have time to go and look at it so i thought uh the supporting actor it's got a, a team of hijackers but one in particular who like the bastard one the, the, yeah the one who's like the most psychopathic yeah. that i thought would make for like a supporting actor category um and some of the makeup effects the makeup effects are, are all too, yeah. pretty good yeah yeah yeah, I enjoyed that one. All right, well, we've done it. Um, we... <laughs> well, so I, I do, as a separate thing, Yeah. Um, it, it doesn't belong in our list uh, because it's not from this year. But I did want to give special mention, and I think you'd agree, to um, a, rest 
a restoration that came out this year of George Romero's The Amusement Park. Very much agree with, which with is, mentioning this film. Right. Yes. I, I don't know the extent to which you can call it a horror film, apart from the association with Romero, but it is, it's an astonishing movie. Um, it's like 50-something minutes long, too, so if people want to go yeah, it's on, check it out. It's on Shudder now. And it has, I mean, it, I, I would say it's horrible because of, like, this... It, it's shot with like this documentary style just based off both budget and what Romero is going for, but it has this kind of nightmarish feel to it, which I think is made all the more scary just because it's shot this way, because it's set in this kind of real world. Um, it's set at, at an amusement park and you're just following this old man around like, and it works as this you know commentary on elder abuse. I think it's, it's very effective, very evocative in terms of how it's, placing him in this environment and having different things to say and ways to go about like getting across its message through the course of its like hour long period that it exists. I think it's really effective. Um, and yeah, certainly worth mentioning because it's the, you know, hearing that, Hey, George Romero has a lost film that we found and want to bring to theaters and the, and the shutter like, cool. All right. <laughs> yes. Sign me up immediately for that. And it delivers. It's really good. Yeah. Like the, the story behind that, it's like a, um, what a, uh, what is it a, a religious group like h hired him to like make a, a basically like a psa and it was just like this is too messed up we can't do we can't show this to anybody <laughs> they just, it just uh. got buried for years <laughs> but yeah that's no, certainly worth 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 special mention for sure because uh more romero is certainly from that period of time especially a very good thing um any other thoughts we've we've, kind of, we've gone through our you know all these different categories on, on the year of horror I feel like this, this was a lot of fun for my part. I thought, I thought it was a yeah, good time. this was fun. We should do it again. Yeah. Um, we should. Yeah, we should maybe think about other categories as well. As we were talking, I was thinking if we ever do do this again, like maybe the funniest horror film. That that's a possible category. Yeah, well, those are things we can talk um, about for sure. As far as incorporating more fun categories, but um, most yeah. most uh, like bananas. Because every time you mentioned *Malignant*, I thought, yeah, that needs to be a separate category of just like balls to the wall craziest horror film yeah i think but we will we, have to we, we can come up with some fun it. like very specific categories too one that doesn't need any other nominees just like something you know like best chair throw malignant like you know just something like something like that <laughs> but, uh, but yeah all right um but yeah thank you for sure it was fun. no i was glad to kind of go as as you brought up the idea of giving more recognition to horror films that just aren't going to go that far otherwise um certainly worthwhile so yeah well uh Ideally, yeah, we'll figure out how to kind of keep this going in the the, you know, the years to come. Uh, but Mike, anything you want to plug before we wrap up here? I don't have anything to plug, but but listen, and I mean this for Abe as well. But to you, I'll say, you know, as we conclude another challenging year, I'm very grateful uh, for your friendship and for all the hard work you put into this podcast. I hope your listeners know it takes a lot of work and discipline to do this, and um, you're a real pro. Well, thank you. I I, I appreciate that, and Abe does as well. You know, we certainly. We do what we can. Um, but yeah. Tell him I said. I will. Um, as far as this show goes, you can find everything we do, every every other episode over on iTunes, as well as Spotify, Audible, Spotify, Stitcher, everything. We find podcasts. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at various forms of OutNow underscore podcast. Yeah, all my, you know where all my stuff is. I'm, my main blog is the code is to comment on Twitter at Aaron's PS4. Uh, but that is going to do it for this uh, bonus horror awards of 2021 episode and yeah we still have our top 10 show on the way coming soon among other things but that's going to do it for this uh this week's bonus so until next time so long and goodbye 
and Happy New Year. A nameless evil once buried forever Now he's awake and he's ready for terror But hold up, wait, there's a catch This kid Mimi has a plan to hatch With the magic gem, she has the power The monster's a friend, it's her finest hour They'll go on adventures, cause all kinds of trouble Blow up the world and dance on the rubble First he needs a name Something cool, it can't be lame That's when it struck her, so cool and so mean The monster will be named P. to betray.